I am, I am grateful to stand before you this morning. If those want to make your way back to your seats, uh, we'll go ahead and dismiss our youth and our kiddos. Then go on and have their fun while we dive into the word here tonight. I am uh, very, very happy to be standing before you tonight uh, for many reasons. Number one, it's always good just to be in the house of God. You know, no matter what else is going on in the day and that kind of thing, it's always good to have a time of refreshing. A time to finally come into a house where you know that the other people around here are working toward the same goals and objectives. And sometimes we need that because, you know, on our jobs, there are days I feel like is everyone going the exact opposite direction that I'm trying to go. So, I mean, look, it's the way it is, right? It's the way the world is. So it's, it's good to have that encouragement. But tonight I want to talk to you about a topic. Pastor Powell had um, asked me to speak this month on the topic of evangelism. And look, I'm not going to lie to you. I was a little like, I don't know if I'm the best person to do this topic, right? I'm the teacher. I'm the guy who likes to sit and really read and study and understand. I'm not the guy who likes to go out and knock all the doors. And it's not that I don't like talking to people, but it's just, you know, it's awkward sometimes knocking on a stranger's door. I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest. Not all of us have that motivation to walk up to the stranger and, and you know, say, hey, are you going to hell? <laughs> Some people can do it, and it works for them. That, unfortunately, is not me. But I will tell you, though, as I began kind of like really reading and thinking on this topic, a lot of times whenever I'm preparing for any message, my preparation is way before I write the first note on the first page. A lot of times I just like to spend really contemplating on what, what does this word even really mean? Where do I see this theme pop up throughout Scripture? How does this topic align with the character of God? And, and then when I kind of get a general idea, then I can start to write. Because what I don't ever want to do is stand up here and give you a feel-good message that has a couple one-liners, but doesn't actually align with the rest of Scripture. It's easy to do that if you take one passage or one story and make it into a sermon, but you fail to look, does that line up with the rest of God's character? And we see that happen a lot. So I don't ever want to do that. So tonight, join me in Ephesians chapter 4. And I am going to hopefully shed a little light on this topic of evangelism that might help some of you that are out there like me that's, you know, slightly more reserved at times. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and this is where we'll kind of focus. And he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, 
till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here, just for a little bit, I want to talk to you on this very simple topic. What is evangelism? What does Scripture actually say evangelism is? And I, I started off my message tonight just by simply saying I'm glad to be here, and all of that is true. But as many of you know, I've, I've spent the last, this is hard to even think back this far now, but last six years going to school again. And uh, in, in 2017, after getting out of the military, doing all those things, I decided at the ripe young age of 34 to uh, get back to school. And it was um, a bit of a culture shock. Uh, most of the people that I was going to school with, we were talking one day about 9-11. And, you know, most of you know 9-11 was significant for all of us. But for me, because that's what, you know, brought me into joining the military and all the different things that happened. Many of them were like, yeah, I remember that. I was in third grade. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm getting old so fast. And so I finished up my bachelor's and the early 2020 started working in the ER overnight, right at the height of COVID. And um, that was a wild ride and then went right back to school again for my master's. And finally, this year, May 5th, I am done. All of it. I told my wife, I'm never going to school ever again. My bachelor's, master's, done. But as I look back over that time, there were so many times I'm like, man, I really wish I could have gone to this extra thing over here or to this camp over here. But I didn't always have the availability, working full-time overnight, doing school full-time, trying to raise kids, be a husband, do all of the things. There's only so many hours in a day. And there were plenty of times that I, probably like many of us here, felt guilty. God, I really should go out and, and, and probably do some more evangelism or try to, try to meet up with some of the other people that are doing these things. And I just cannot seem to find the extra couple minutes. I'm spending every minute I have doing something. And so there is this, this temptation or this sense that happens where you begin to feel guilty because you're not doing all the things that everyone else is doing. But a lot of this for me stems from the idea that I don't know that I've ever really, really grappled with what does it even really mean to evangelize? Now, I know the basics, like most everybody here. We know that evangelism is sharing the gospel of Christ, talking to others, bringing others into relationship with him. I know those things. But the word seems to go a little beyond that. And it says that one of the, one of the fivefold ministries, if you will, is an evangelist. So does it mean if I'm not an evangelist that I am not supposed to evangelize? the answer to that question is no, of course not. When I hear the words evangelist, evangelism, I immediately think back to my teenage years in southwest Louisiana. I recall spending countless hours walking the streets in my very small hometown in the dog days of summer with 100 plus humidity. Yes, I know it only goes to 100, but if you go to Louisiana, I promise it does go higher. Lots of mosquitoes, lots of heat, walking around in my blue jeans, knocking on doors, and thinking, why am I doing this? 14, 15, 16 years old, all throughout much of my teenage years when I first got in church. And don't get me wrong, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for the world. I'd do it all over again in a heartbeat. I learned so much during all of that time and began to, to develop things within myself. But, but like many, that is what I began to believe was evangelism. That's it. That's evangelism. Going out on a Saturday, hanging tracks on a door, you know, talking to strangers, that encompassed evangelism. Because 
me, like many other people throughout much of our time of going to different churches, that's what people do. Not good, not bad, just it is what it is. Some of it's tradition, we do what we know, and we tend to repeat the things that we, we've learned from before us. And if you are anything like me, there have been those times where you go out and you knock on doors and you, you evangelize, and it seems to fall a little flat. You don't really get the return on what you're thinking in your mind that you're going to go knock doors and Sunday 100 people are going to show up to church. Never mind that you only knocked on 10 doors, but you know, God's going to bring 100 people to church. And then when it doesn't happen, you begin to doubt yourself. Well, maybe I wasn't a good door knocker. Maybe I wasn't smart enough. Maybe I didn't know enough scripture verses. And we begin to measure whether or not we are effective in evangelism based on one event. So it kind of brings me back to my original question. What is evangelism? Now, the Greek word that's used here for evangelism and even evangelist simply means this. A bringer of good news or a bearer of good tidings. Look with me at Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 14. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 14. As we go through this month, we will get into more of the meat and potatoes about how to improve, I guess, your, your evangelism and some things that we need to know as a church. But for tonight, I just want to talk about the simple idea of what is evangelism in the first place. So Mark 16, starting in verse 14, says this. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. This is, of course, Jesus talking to his disciples. He had already risen to other people. He came and told them that they had seen Jesus, but they didn't believe them. And so now Jesus is kind of confronting them on that fact but then he kind of gives them a command, if you will, after this point. Verse 15, he says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What is the gospel? That word we use for gospel means the good news. So here, the first commandment God gives after he is, if you will, risen, is evangelism. He tells the disciples, Go out and share the gospel. That's evangelism, to be one who bears the good news. It says, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. Now this passage combined with Matthew 28's version of the Great Commission and numerous other verses seems to strongly support this notion that evangelism is simply defined is preaching the gospel on the street corner in the supermarket uh, around our neighborhood and our schools. In other words, much of modern-day evangelism is location and or event-focused instead of people-focused. Look now at John chapter 4. We're going to look at this a little further. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. John chapter 4 says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. 
Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now, if you did not get to hear uh, Pastor Lucas's message on the lady at the well a couple weeks ago, I suggest you go back and listen to it. It was fantastic. In that message, he talked a lot of about how that your approach to people does, in fact, matter. And as he was talking about that story, it made me start thinking of a couple other things. But I want you to notice the progression of events. When Jesus comes and he meets the, the lady at the well, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but the, the basic uh, outline, if you will, is this, that he meets a Samaritan. A Samaritan is essentially half Jew, half Gentile. They were looked at as second-class citizens to the Jews. They were someone who could not uh, uh, be in the same places, worship in the same places that uh, true Jews, I have true Jews could be. They couldn't go to the well at the same time. And then this lady had the added uh, uh, shame, if you will, of being someone who was not in a right relationship with her husband, any of them. And thus, she went to the well at noon when everybody else went at morning because she was so ashamed of who she was that she thought the only way to make it through was to be alone. Now, it's no coincidence that Jesus happened to be at the well at the very hour that she was coming to it. Now, listen how this happens. First, he meets her, meaning Jesus meets her where she is. He helped the woman at the well to recognize that she had value despite what the Jewish elite might say about her. Notice Jesus didn't just happen upon the Samaritan woman at the well. Scripture says that Jesus was sitting at the well waiting for her. Man, I tell you, that's something when I, when I realized that sometime back, it's not something that I feel like gets mentioned a lot when we talk about this story. We often talk about the story of Jesus coming to the well and meeting the woman there and, 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 and talking to her. But the truth is, the, the, the story tells us that Jesus went to the well before the woman even got there. And he sat there. And when she came up, he said, can you give me some water? The reason why that is such an amazing thing to me is, in our shame, we will intentionally separate ourselves from everyone else. We will attempt to walk the exact opposite direction from anyone else that could see our shame. And yet, even in our attempt to hide from everyone, we so often find that Jesus is already in that place waiting for us. The enemy would love for us to, to, to convince ourselves that no one understands us. No one could possibly uh, know the things that I've gone to, the mistakes I've made, the depression I feel. So I have to isolate myself. And yet Jesus says, listen, I know that's the way you feel, but I'm already here waiting for you. We have to open our eyes and see that Jesus is already there waiting for us. But remember, this is about evangelism. You see, we want others to see that same thing, but what I want you to know is you can't help others see that Jesus is in your desolation or in their desolation until you first realize that he was in yours. If you can't get in your soul that God is with you no matter where you go, no matter how far down you think you are, if you don't know that God is already there waiting for you, how can you tell someone else he's waiting for them? Second, Jesus helped the woman to realize that, she was that what she was seeking was not sufficient to solve her real problem. He told her there is a way that not only will satisfy her thirst, 
but will restore her soul. You see, the reason that many people, and I, I'm going to speak from personal experience, okay, so lest any of you think I'm talking about you. The reason that I, in my life, have made poor decisions and have done certain things is because I didn't like the way that I felt about where I was in life. And in my own state of, of depression and disappointment with what I have done, not what anybody else has done to me, but what I have done to myself, I looked for any way to change the way I feel about that. We as people do this all the time. It's why people use drugs. It's why people are promiscuous. It's why people get into gambling. It's, it's, it's not the thing that's so bad. It's the fact that you are so desperately trying to run away from who you are inside. You want to mask it with anything else. But the sad reality is, is no matter how hard you try all of those things, it never seems to actually change the way you feel. If anything, it makes you feel worse than you did before. I was talking about this with someone the other day, and, and I try to be careful from the, the pulpit not to ever get political, but I want to talk just about one specific issue. So right now there is this big move in, in, in gender politics and specifically with this idea of transgenderism. And I want to, I want to tell you something. The average suicide rate within the general population, so... Any general person within our country right now, the average suicide rate is about 4%. And that's been consistent for about the past 50 years. The average suicide rate for someone who identifies as transgender is between 40 and 50%. Think about that. 4% for the general population, and trust me, there's enough problems out there for the general population too, but it goes to 40 to 50% for people who are in this, this idea of transgenderism. But here's the thing. What people will say is, yes, that's because people aren't affirming them or accepting them. But we know there is ongoing research, and I'm trying to be very cautious with my words. I have. So there, there's ongoing research that, that very clearly demonstrates that that's, that that's not true. That even with all of the quote-unquote affirmation, surgeries, drugs, um, communities, all of that, the suicide rate doesn't actually change. But here's why. Because that individual, just like the drug addict, just like the one who seeks out anything else, is looking to find acceptance. They're, they're trying to figure out, why do I feel so empty and different and broken and alone inside? And so in, an, in a desperation, in an attempt to belong somewhere... They see this thing happening over here. Finally, I can be a part of something, part of a community that's going to accept me. And yet the problem is, is when they get to that place, they realize they feel no different than they did before. You see, evangelism is far more than just inviting people to sit on a chair. It is helping people to realize that that thing that they have been fighting against for so long to change can only be changed by Christ. You can't make them smart enough to fix it. You can't give them drugs strong enough to fix it. That old man has to die. And until that happens, they cannot change the way they feel. It's no, no coincidence that Jesus, in this process, explains time and again that the only way salvation happens is when the old man 
dies and all things become new. I don't like that sometimes we as people, and dare I say we as Christians, find it so easy to get very vocal about certain things, about certain sins. And it's easy to shout about those things. How could they? But we gloss over all of the things that people are doing in the dark to try to change that very feeling. And we somehow say, well, that's not as bad as that thing. It's sin. And sin is what separates you from God. I'm not saying you won't ever sin because we are still human and there's still a need for God's grace. But what I am saying is you better be careful that you aren't so loudly pointing the finger at other people's sins that you are unwilling to look at the ones in your own heart. And remember, we're talking about evangelism. Again, I would say, how can you effectively get others to recognize their need for change if you turn a blinded eye to your own need? You see, evangelism is a whole lot more than just talking to people about Jesus. It's more than just the simple words you say on a Saturday morning. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. He wasn't saying that he was Christ. He was saying that he recognized he was going to reproduce in people most likely what he was doing himself. And thus Paul needed to say, I die daily. I need to continue daily to press toward that mark because I know I'm not quite there yet. And everyone who he trained, if you will, no doubt heard the same thing, that every day you need to press toward that mark also. And finally, the third part, if, if you will, the progression of this, this story we find at the, the lady at the well. Jesus confronted her sin... Only after he set the foundation of first saying, listen, I know you think you're not worthy. I know you think you're, you're, you're no good. But he says, there's coming a day when everyone will be able to worship the same. Meaning that he was going to do away with these earthly titles and you're a Jew, you're not a Jew, you're, you're worthy, you're not worthy. But that we would all be under Christ. And so he, he starts off the story by trying to help her to understand that, that though she felt worthless and though she felt dirty, that, that God was going to help her change those things and that he loved her and wanted for her to succeed. And then after he tells her those things, he presents to her a solution to a problem she didn't even realize she had. He asked her about the water. She, of course, thinks he's talking, she's, that he's talking about the water in the well. He goes on, no, 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 you don't understand. The, the water that I'm offering you means you will never thirst again. So at this point, he says, okay, she says, okay, yes, I want that water. She realized that there was something beyond herself that she needed. And then it was when Jesus confronted her and explained to her her sins and what needed to change and, and what needed to happen. You see, if you were to go online right now and to watch videos of street preachers, you will find a ton of people who often scoff and say things like, Jesus doesn't condemn, he only loves. Or, well, I'm a good person, I don't have to worry about that. People don't think they need to change because their measurement of good and bad is based on other people. So, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not 
a child molester. And that's an extreme view, but that's, that's how mankind evaluates morality often. I know that I may have done this thing, and I may still do these things. I know I'm not supposed to, but at least I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. So their morality, their measurement of goodness is based not on God, but on what others are doing. And the problem is, is that as long as you measure your goodness based on others, you will never realize just how bad you actually are. I actually um, heard this, this little illustration recently from someone um, in a sermon, and I thought it was really good, so I want to share it with you guys. If, if a lamb, if I were to bring in a, a young lamb here, and it was a newborn lamb and hadn't been in the dirt or any of those things, and, and it looked all beautiful and white, and I placed it up here before you, you would look at this lamb and you would say, wow, that is a white lamb. Like, it's, it is, like, it is white. It is pristine. It is white. But then, if you could imagine, suspend disbelief for a moment, and the ceiling were to open up, and fresh snow were to fall from the sky. Snow that had never touched the ground, but was in its purest form, if you will. If that snow were to fall and begin to lay three, four feet of snow... And if you've ever seen truly clean snow, snow that's, that's really not been touched by a lot of other things, it is not only white, but it is in some ways when those ice crystals freeze, it is so white that it begins to reflect the light almost to the point you, you have to kind of look away from it. You see, the world looking at the lamb with no other measurement can say, oh yeah, that, that's, that's white. But when they look at that lamb in comparison to the perfection of the snow that is untainted, undefiled, that it, it, its ability to reflect the, its perfection so strongly that you have to look away from how perfect it is, you quickly realize that that white lamb isn't quite as white as what you thought it was. This is one of the hurdles that we as a church, as individuals, have to learn how to help other people with. Because as long as we let other people believe that their goodness is based on some subjective scale, they will never know that they actually need to change. If we could, just for a moment, get people to see the perfection of God... You wouldn't have to do much else because they would be blinded by the brightness of his perfection to the point that they would need to look away and say, okay, I get it. I'm not as good as I thought I was. How do I know this? Well, I seem to recall a story of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah was one who no doubt was revered by many other quote-unquote religious individuals as being a great man of God. But even this great man of God, when he stood in the temple and saw God high and lifted up, what did he immediately do? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Only by seeing God's perfection will we ever realize just how much we truly need him. Now, as we begin to wrap up tonight's lesson, not totally there yet, but this last little point I want to focus on here is what I hope, what, what for me, in many, many ways, changed my perception of what evangelism is. 
I, I mentioned in the beginning that, you know, like many other people, my, my understanding of evangelism from a young teenager was just the acts of going out and knocking doors and doing those things, which there's nothing wrong with. I am not trying to downplay going out, meeting people. I'm, I'm not downplaying those things. What I'm saying is sometimes we have too narrow of a definition of what evangelism is, that it is event or location-based and not necessarily people-based. And some time back, I had look, was looking at the specific parable. We're going to turn to Matthew 13, if you want to turn there while I'm getting to this point. When I, when I looked at this story one time in Matthew 13 and the parable of the sower, there was something that kind of jumped out to me, and, and I don't even remember what it was that kind of triggered it, but it forever changed, not just my perception of, of evangelism, if you will, but all around discipleship. Look at Matthew 13, starting in verse 1. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and fowls came and devoured them. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Now, hundreds, if not thousands of sermons have been taught about this parable. We find Jesus describing the different conditions of the heart. That's what the ground is. And how it affects their response to truth. That's what the seed is. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus explains that Isaiah prophesied that seeing they would not see and hearing they would not hear because their hearts had waxed cold. So they would not receive this truth. And at this point it would be easy to point up your nose and say, yeah, that wicked world hates God's truth, and therefore, let him be condemned. And I have, never from this church, never from this state, but I have heard preachers make statements like this, that, yep, bless God, they don't, they, they're not going to accept the truth right now, well, then let them be accursed and go to hell. But I want to remind you that at a certain point in time, there was a man named Saul who fit squarely into this category. But over time, the condition of his heart changed, and he became Paul. And at one point in time, James, the very brother of Jesus, he fit into this group. He heard and saw truth for years, but refused to receive it. His heart was no doubt full of stones. But by God's grace, James would have... The stony ground removed, and not only that, but become a, a, a champion for the gospel. 
I tell you uh, that, that I always, I think back to James and I think back to him sharing these stories about how that you see through a glass darkly and how that you don't understand things, but you will at some point. And I, I, I think about it from the fact that James is telling this like, no, you don't understand. I can tell you this because it was me. It was me who stood face to face with truth but refused to accept it. It was me who looked in the mirror of truth but walked away unchanged. So I can understand James had to have some kind of, uh, of, of passion burning within him because he knew that he was the one heading down that road. So when he looked at these others, he wasn't preaching from some high and mighty, you, you bad people. It was, no, please, I know where you are. And it's better on this side. But you know, beyond that, lest I forget that at one point in time, I was in this category. I was in the place with a heart full of stones that said, I will never go to a Pentecostal church. Words I spoke more than one time. It was me who was in a position that said, I am good enough already. It was me in a position who saw no need for change. But it was also me who God had mercy on. And time after time put people in my path to remind me that God, I need you. And when I think back on those times, I cannot help but remember the time when I first realized just how broken, how dirty I actually was. And that emotion and sensation of what it felt like to say, God, I surrender. I recognize that I am not able to do this on my own. And there are those in the world who would look at that experience and say, you're weak. And I would say, you're right. You are absolutely right. But the good news is, is that my salvation isn't dependent upon my strength or weakness. In fact, it's the opposite, that only when I am weak can I prove Jesus strong. We live in a world that says you cannot be weak. You cannot let people know that you need stuff. But if only we could help them to realize that it is so much better. Learning to be okay with weakness in your flesh, but being strong in the spirit because of the power that is greater within you than that which is in the world. I want, if you get nothing else out of tonight's message, I want you to get this one thing. This parable of the sower and talking about the different fields, you have to understand that at that time, it was not possible like you and I might be able to say, well, this didn't work out. This house is no good. Let's sell it. Let's move on and get a new place. No, for many, many people, this, this plot of land that they had that many times was passed down from generation to generation, there was no starting over. There was no, hey, let's just sell it and we'll try again somewhere else. We'll file bankruptcy and then we'll, uh, you know, wait for the government to give us a little money and we'll start all over. No, this was it. This was their plot of land for their life. So when someone looks at that land and says, ooh, there's stones in the ground, we say it's worthless. But they say, no, it's all I have. 
So they recognized that they needed to go and work the ground, that they needed to spend time trying to remove the stones, get rid of the weeds, fertilize, tend the ground so that it could again produce. In this parable, it's easy to look at this and say, yeah, they're all sinners, look at their ground. But in fact, what I believe evangelism, one of the primary things that it tells us is that yes, their ground is hard, but you got the tools. You need to be the one to help them along the way. Work that ground. Help them to reveal the stones, to, to remove them. And yes, there will be people who say, no thanks, and that's out of your hands. But what I don't want us to do is to have this flash-in-the-pan evangelism that simply says, hey, you want to hear about Jesus? No, okay, goodbye. And we call that evangelism. Now, true evangelism... I like to think of it like this. There is the evangelist, right? Five-fold ministry. There's the evangelist. Pops into town like a whirlwind, goes around the neighborhoods, gets all the people in. Church is great, and thank God for that. I'm not knocking any of that. God gave that as a gift to the church. But evangelism is one part evangelist and three parts gardeners. You see, you can't have a harvest if there aren't people planting seeds, tending to the ground, watering the seeds, and ready to pluck up the roots as they arise. You can have the best speaker in the world come through here. But if there are no gardeners to take the time to work with the land, should have never came in the first place. I think that's why we so often get frustrated when we have these awesome services. And we think, yes, now we're going to have revival. But then we are somehow surprised when we don't do anything different and nothing else changes. But you may not be the evangelist, but you are still called to evangelism. And I dare say that we hold the harder portion in gardening because it's a process that takes time. It's a process that has setbacks. It's a process that has frustrations. But when we can stay with it, when we can keep plugging along, eventually that hard ground becomes fertile. And then it brings forth life. And then you can look at someone else and say, now you know. Now you know what I've been talking about. How that God took this wicked old man and turned him around. How he took the hurts and made them into joy. What could be more amazing than that? To say that you had a small part to play in someone forsaking eternity in hell and joining Jesus in eternity. Let's all stand. Over the next couple Wednesdays, we're going to talk about some practical applications. How do we go about doing these things? What does this mean? What, what things should we do different? But before you can get to the practical part, I think it's always important we understand the spiritual side of things, that we understand the why we're doing it. And the first step of gardening is to take a good survey of the land and see what work needs to be done and what areas you want to start with first. And for us, that survey happens in prayer. We need to be willing to pray, God help us to be led into situations and places to people. Help us to be a light for them. Not a flash in the pan, hey, here's Jesus, but a, 
I'm going to stand beside you. And I'm going to help you along this process. And if it sounds like something else, well, because evangelism is inexorably linked to discipleship. You can't take them apart from one another. So as we close in short prayer here, I want you to pray simply something along the lines of asking God to change your heart, how you view evangelism, and what steps and people God wants you to begin to work on so that you can be the gardener that he's called you to be. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to stand before your people. More so, I thank you for the opportunity to, to understand and to read your word. I pray, oh God, hide this word in our hearts that we would not sin against you. But also, Lord, open our eyes spiritually that we would see the need for your seed of truth to be planted in other people. Help us, oh God, to have wisdom and boldness to speak when you put people around us, to pray when it comes to our mind, to be patient and persistent in understanding that this world continues to wax colder and colder. But we thank you, Lord, that your love and mercy shed upon us is also available for them. Help us, O oh God, to walk in your spirit and not in our flesh. We give you all glory and all honor in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.